so stupid he comes across in front of me every single time he overtakes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the breaking zone! Guaranteed to be more dramatic than Aaron Rodgers in a playoff game. Welcome to a brand new era. You are the world champion! I'm your host, Andre Harrison. And with me, as always, for the foreseeable future now, I can gladly announce. First of all, from America, Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Hello, Go Pack Go, or Sad Pack Sad. <laughs> I like this, yeah, God, God bless uh, motherfucker Fitz, as I like to call him, after the uh, <laughs> after that game winner. And on the other corner, representing Dartford, Mr. Adam Johnson. <laughs> it somehow doesn't sound anywhere near as glamorous as America, no, Dartford. <laughs> You're not giving me much of a chance here, man. No, it isn't. But um, I, guess I can now gladly announce this is going to be your permanent hosting trio going forward, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, if you've been following any of the three of us over the last couple of weeks, you may have noticed some changes. <laughs> really? <laughs> just just a couple just just a, just a few minor tweaks here and there like me quitting youtube um <laughs> yeah this section of the podcast is the one entitled since when did your facebook page change its entire name <laughs> <laughs> i've had that sucker for four years and not changed it once yeah but um yeah i i think i've got some explaining to do basically and yeah. I've, 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 I've i think this, we all have yeah to this point i think i've been relatively vague about most of the, the podcast's plans going forward. I've, I've dropped in little hints and teasers here and there. But if you've taken a time out to listen to this part of the show, then congratulations. You're getting the full brief here first. Congratulations. You're a loyal listener. <laughs> so, I bet the first question you're asking is, why did I quit YouTube? Um, to put it briefly, it's a dead horse. <laughs> it's a dead horse. No one's looking for F1 gameplay six months after the game's come out there's the, the way the community is going over there it's clearly leaning towards four or five dudes you can probably guess most of who those four or five dudes are they're piggybacking off each other's success are they all in a youtuber specific formula one championship might be uh, <laughs> apparently <laughs> um but you know the way the community was going the way myself was going my because i've said it before i feel like my strengths are better as a writer and as a podcaster now compared to me as a video maker. I'm not going to be the kind of guy that spends three hours a day editing stuff. That's that's just not my strength. It just isn't. That's and, mine. Yeah, that, that's Johnson's strength. We'll get, to that, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But um, that was never my strongest asset. I always feel like, like as, as the podcast grew from what was originally a university project into something that became a, a proper baby of mine, something I actually really enjoyed doing, I kind of of realized that i'm probably better off at this than doing the whole youtube thing constantly and given what i am good at which is mostly analytical journalistic style kind of content why would you look for a video game for that so mm. you know it just simply put just it just didn't make any sense to keep wasting resources into something that was never going to bear any real fruition um my channel's barely grown in the last year and a half i've gained about 500 subscribers in a year and a half it's it's just it was a dead horse and i was never going to be able to compete with guys like ben like arav like matty etc so 
as a result, I thought, let's do this podcast full time. And I put this suggestion forward. Adam came down to my house just this time last week and we talked it over. And after that conversation and actually reading the comments on my last ever Dre talks, I did talking about the frustration of being a middling YouTuber. Mm. I read the comments on it and I think that's what took me over the top. And it was something that had been on my mind for about five or six months. And like the comments and then talking to Adam about it was what kind of pulled the trigger for me on the whole thing, basically. And it was my brother's birthday when I made that video to to say, yeah, this is it. Time to move on. And you make it sound like it was like a birthday present to your brother. Happy birthday, bro. <laughs> I've quit YouTube just for it, you. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. I didn't think of it that way, but now you, now you mention it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically... We are doing this podcast full-time throughout 2016 at least. And it's going to be a little bit inconsistent now because there's not an awful lot to talk about out there in the motorsports world. Obviously, it's the off-season and obviously it's January. But once late February rolls around, the podcast will be coming out once a week. We've been a little bit inconsistent. We were, we were, in 2015, we were a bit inconsistent. Sometimes we were one once a week. Sometimes we were every two weeks. Uh, it was just more like when I felt like it, more than yeah. anything else. Um, so we're going to commit to once a week from late February all the way through till Christmas, more than likely, um, throughout the year. As you've already guessed, me and Ryan are going to be permanent co-hosts, as is Adam Johnson. He might step back as occasional times. He's also going to be producing and editing the show for us. Um, we are taping this on January 18th, which is a Monday, and we're going to be releasing the podcast on a Friday. Um, so if you're a particular fan of Downforce, for example, you're getting that and Bike Live all in one day. Hooray! Dre Squared. Uh, uh, Dre Squared. Double Dre. Get the hashtags going. <laughs> but um, So that's the plan. We're going to record on a Monday, film, uh, obviously, and then obviously produce it for Friday. You will actually get a sneak peek of the podcast podcast on youtube probably wednesday or thursday the day before the podcast actually comes out um if you subscribe to the youtube channel which doesn't actually have a custom url yet because of google plus rules you've got to have a channel for 30 days but i'm going to try and take motorsport 101 if it becomes available in about three weeks time in whatnot so if you haven't subscribed to the youtube channel just just search for motorsport 101 or if you haven't already um go on my old channel at harrison 101 hd there there's a new video on there explaining where the new channel is. Try and find it if you can. <laughs> and the plan with the new channel is you're going to get, um, I'd say, depends on the show, but I'd, I'd roughly aim for three, maybe four um, video highlight segments of the podcast per episode. So you get a nice spread range of content throughout the week before getting told about a new show which is, you know, great for everybody. And I'm still more than happy to do Dre TVs every once in a while as well to help fill the void a little bit where that's concerned. So that's the rough plan. Basically, it's not finalized. We could always change things here and there. We're very flexible when it comes to these things. Um, but that's the rough plan. Also, dot, 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 we're going on Patreon with this thing. Mm -hmm. I look forward to the snooty side of the internet telling me you can't ask for money, even though Twitch blatantly exists. Um, <laughs> and Chris so Harris has made an entire car show on YouTube based off Patreon. 
<laughs> exactly, because, you so know, you everyone and their mother has a Patreon account these days, so we might as well do the same, right? Mm -hmm. um, and given that YouTube is kind of a dead horse when it comes to ad revenue these days, we're going down the Patreon road as a way of guaranteed income. Um, if we get to certain objectives, we can, I'm sure we could expand ourselves further, maybe yep. down the roads of live production, like live, doing shows live instead, as well as the tapings. Um, we and our ultimate goal is to raise $50,000 to bring Ryan King to the UK. Hey! <laughs> Yay, no more internet connection failures. <laughs> or me and Dre to the US. Dre, do you fancy that instead? Uh, I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> then again, a black guy in the United States probably isn't the best idea sometimes. <laughs> like, you may accidentally get shot. Um, but but on, on the whole, yeah, that's kind of the King's just sat over there like, damn, man, I'm the one already here. <laughs> <laughs> This is also true, but um, that's kind of the plan. We like the Patreon isn't set in stone just yet. I'd say give it a, maybe another week or two, and we'll have something finalized out for that. Because mm -hmm. that's actually very important to actually get a decent pitch out there for what we want to do. Of course, yeah, we, we don't um, want you guys just pinging. Like, we don't. Basically, what we don't want to sound like is like, like we're shaking a, a collection tin, no. or like a begging bowl. That's no. not what we're out about at all. It's if you feel like. You know, because we understand. I I did a crowdfunding myself for Team Bomber Sports last mm. year. Um, you understand, not everyone can afford to, not everyone wants to. But if you enjoy what we do going forward, you fancy supporting it, that's the best way to do it. Over on our Patreon, you'll see more of that very soon. Yep, absolutely. And it's make. I just want to make one thing absolutely clear: we are not going to withhold content from you, and we're not going to put a gun to anybody's head to say, "Oh, if we don't get to this level, we're not going to produce the show anymore." No, it's not like that. We're doing it because we want to do it. YouTube it's just Reg can go where the sun doesn't shine. Yeah, exactly. It can go fuck itself. So <laughs> basically, it's one of those situations where if you really feel like helping us out that would be fantastic if not not a problem at all it's just we feel like if we if we can support ourselves and make a bit of money on the side doing this why the hell not Absolutely. so you know that's that's pretty much the long and the short of our plans right johnson i think that just about covers everything um there's a few other things i wanted to add just a little yeah bit. sure go for um, it mainly just because oh hello my microphone's working now um hey. just because when we had that meeting last week what was interesting about it is uh, to be honest, I feel like you probably could have kept going with the gaming channel and made it really good, but it was clear that your motivation doesn't lay there anymore. It's clear that mm. this is what you really want to do, and I'm all on the train for that, as is King, um, who has helped to make us some awesome new graphics, new logos and everything. That's really cool. Yeah, he's um, stops on that one. Because <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny. As we're recording this on the Monday, I've just spent five days away on business uh, in Birmingham and Milton Keynes, and... Mm. I wasn't around on social media as much, but I kept checking our little group chat that we've got going, and it was just back and forth, graphics, pinged, website details, stuff <laughs> happening. It was, it was amazing. I was like, okay, I've got to get my shit together. When I come back, I've got to be ready to go. And yeah. it's really exciting in that respect. Um, there'll, be, <laughs> there'll be multiple ways to follow the show. Usual place will still be on um, harrison101.com. Indeed, yeah. Still be over there, yep. That'll still be the biggest home for the site as well and as obviously, obviously the obvious iTunes. outlets yes. like itunes on itunes uh, yep um as for the patreon as i say there's no there's gonna be no exclusive content behind that because paywalls suck to be honest with you but there's gonna be 
bonus bits and bobs, Google Hangouts, things like that. Dre, I'd, I believe you've done things like Dre and Friends watch this race and stuff. Yes. Um, exclusive Dre TV, maybe. Who knows? It's all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And yeah. it's all good. It's all good up until now. Basically, uh, we're committing to make this podcast as awesome as possible. Mm-hmm. And we look forward to you guys joining us on the ride. I'm stoked to get going. Yeah, me too. So that's pretty much the long and the short of it. If you have any other questions, please, please I do not hesitate to get in touch with me. I will do my best to answer because this whole thing's come about very quickly. Like, mm-hmm. there's only been about a week in the process or so. And, you know, I've had to call in so many favors to, <laughs> to even make this happen. I, I, I feel ashamed of myself for the amount of favors I've had to call in on this one. And there's two or three more people behind us i've got to thank as well i've got to thank stephanie hunt on my website manager because she is an absolute angel and i would not be doing this if it wasn't for her she's been absolutely ridiculously helpful yeah. um towards me helping out on this one and a lot of the artwork you're going to see on the channel is going to come from zara daniela as well so thanks to her as well follow her on twitter at zara sahichi is brilliant and she's also got a very very funny most website called mind puncher paradigm google it as well it's very very good so thanks to her as well she'll be doing a lot of the artwork for us as well so there's a real team behind this and i don't know oh, if i'd yeah. actually end up saying this i mean i'm in charge of a team of people on the internet <laughs> the harrison uh, one-on-one empire <laughs> <laughs> god that feels so disgusting to say um but um so, so again and obviously before i get going a massive thank you to everybody for all the kind words and support ever since i announced this was it 14 days ago and that's two mm. weeks ago was when i first made this announcement and it i've been overwhelmed with the amount of messages sincerity you know good wishes thoughts you know support ever since the last two weeks and you know to to have such a a great audience is just a wonderful blessing i could ever wish you know i, I, I couldn't wish for, for a better audience i've said this time and time again and uh, and i'll repeatedly say that because it's the goddamn truth <laughs> that um you guys are wonderful and if it wasn't for the confidence you guys have in me as a person i wouldn't be doing this so thanks to all of you guys and i can only hope i can deliver on what i set out to accomplish and your your hopefully your your belief in me won't go to waste so without further ado let's get on with the rest of the show and this is a big opening segment one we actually missed during the whole shuffle because of the, the week off well two weeks off the obscene podcast and things like that that um the bbc is cut Formula One, uh, their Formula One coverage, their partially live F1 coverage uh, has been gone as part of their big round of cutbacks. We kind of half hinted this in the last episode towards the end. We talked about how it was looking that way, but it's now finally been confirmed that uh, Channel 4 are going to be getting the F1 coverage rights that BBC have left behind. And and uh, yeah, this is a massive deal, King, for the UK. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Oh, God, I can't even remember when BBC got the coverage from my TV, but it seems like forever ago. 2009, and now, 2009, I think it was. 2009 yeah. Yeah, and now it seems BBC decided to get out of the contract early and give the rights to ITV. <laughs> or so we thought it was ITV. Like, like, like every- <laughs> yeah, we, everyone thought it was going to be ITV, but then it ended up going to Channel 4. Yeah, because it turns out Channel 4 actually had a 10-point plan to take F1 forward. Around that kind of time in 2011, they had a plan to try and get the F1 rights and had a 10-point plan to be able to try and put it forward. And they actually had a plan originally going forward with this. So it's not like it's come out of nowhere. 
and Channel 4 just rushed this team together to say, no, we're going after this, guys. No, they had a plan in place a good few years ago to try and make this happen, and now here's their opportunity to be able to do it. And it's a shame to a degree because it's if you've been following F1 in the United Kingdom in terms of their coverage, they had pretty much everybody they could ever wish to have when BBC took the rights in 2009. It was a real dream team. They put a mm-hmm. fresh young face in there in Jake Humphrey. They had David Coulthard and Eddie Jordan. It was such a brilliant trio of, of hosts and what they, they were Martin able Brundle to do. On commentary. Yeah, Martin Brundle on commentary. Jonathan Legar, eh. But, um, you know, they got, they moved him on quite quickly for for Ben Edwards. They had David Croft, I think, doing the, the practice sessions as well. Um, before Sky poached them, and very slowly Sky started gutting their team out when they got the live rights in 2013. I think I want to say it was. Yeah, because um, the BBC sort of that was when they split their coverage. They went down to ten live races and sold mm. the rest to Sky Sports, and that really alienated a lot of fans in this country who believed that it was like they'd heard all the things of in the what was it the um, Concord Agreement and things like that that it had yeah. to be on free to air, and the BBC went. Not every race has to be on free to air. They found Sky, a loophole. Have it, have it, bye. <laughs> Cha-ching. Yeah, they basically found a loophole. So yeah. that, that that's the long and the short of it. They found an easy way to cut costs because F1 is an expensive sport to broadcast. And for those that are, that it's are an expensive a, sport in general, yeah, it, it's a very expensive sport in general. I mean, you're flying a crew around to 19 different races around mm. the world in the period of eight months or so. I mean, you can. And, and obviously, live TV is expensive enough as it is. It's even more when you factor in you're going around the world to film in a constant tight schedule over the course of a eight month period. That's expensive. It is. And for those that are unaware already, the BBC are already making big cutbacks to their sports department. Many of that is down to the lack of TV license money, and much of that is down to the the inevitable hit that Top Gear is going to take later this year when that show comes back on TV because Top Gear was a guaranteed £60 million a year in revenue. That's that's what that show was worth to them. And it's not going to be the same without Clarkson. So... To compensate, they've had to, you know, butcher their live sports coverage to a, to a large degree, and that's that's been one of the biggest hits. And which is a yeah. real shame in that respect, because I always thought the BBC sport coverage has historically always been really good, or generally to a good standard, mainly from a production viewpoint. I think a lot oh, yeah, of their absolutely. camera angles and things, uh, like for example, their grandstand coverage in the 1990s and how they mm-hmm. um, how they had their as live coverage of the British Touring Car Championship and their historic Formula One coverage was always very good. Their presentation was great. Um, Generally, although, you know, as with most sports coverage, there was a little bit of bias there, but generally it was a bit less, or they at least tried because Mm -hmm. they were under the remit of having to be neutral. Um, So, I mean, anyone who's watched their rugby coverage will know it's about as neutral as three Welshmen cheering a Welsh Grand Slam can be. (laughs) Um, so but I mean that's one thing that's being cut they're selling off half of the six nations to ITV so Mm -hmm. I mean it's going to get to the point where that that golden ring fence around Wimbledon which is the one bit of sport they will fight tooth and nail to the very last there'll Mm -hmm. be like bailiffs climbing the ramparts outside BBC television studios London and they'll (laughs) still be in the offices going quick protect the Wimbledon coverage protect the Wimbledon coverage Uh, anything else they can get rid of Wimbledon no that's they will fight to the last but I always ever since that Sky Sports deal I always got the point the feeling that it was a matter of when not if Mm -hmm. that the BBC would try and get out of it and yeah. I think, as I say, it's a big surprise they're moving it to that it's Channel Four that are the ones picking it up because you don't you don't associate Channel Four as a sporting network. They do cricket 
Uh, they did the Paralympics and did a very good job with that, I have to say. Yes. Uh, they do they, horse they, racing. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, they're very much the sort of edgy youth orientated. They'll have like the uh, kind of edgy comedy, comedies, reality shows and the mm-hmm. dramas and things like that. And you kind of don't associate them with a very fairly serious, expensive premium sport like Formula One. But we remain to be proven wrong on that one. It'd be very interesting. And they did start... I have to say, on the right foot with their press release saying that they had the coverage, within the first paragraph, they made sure to say there'd be no adverts during the races. Yeah, that's a that's a very very good news, and I know that was one of the biggest complaints when ITV had the coverage back in back in the uh, obviously late '90s to early 2000s until 2008 when they left. They they had ads all through the Grand Prix, and and you, often you would miss key moments of action and because they were using the world feed they couldn't go back and show it again unless the world feed did so mm. yeah it, it often caused many problems and yeah johnson's absolutely right channel four has always been the edgier broadcaster on mainstream terrestrial british tv their their own catchphrase is born risky and that's that's what they do and you're right they're not the biggest prolific sporting broadcaster out there they used to have the ashes obviously and you know the horse racing is still a big deal for them and you know that they did win awards for their paralympic coverage but when they did the mainstream ones in daegu i mentioned this before how bad Ortis Dealey was as a host and he had that famous blunder he just said jessica ennis good night and it was just one of those really awkward things that went viral and it it, it, it didn't go down well at all but on the whole like if anyone is going to put a fresh take on F1, it would be Channel 4 out of all the mainstream broadcasters. So actually, to a degree, I'm casually optimistic about what they're going to do. I'm, I'm cautious, but at the same time, there's best potential for it to be great. And we've already found out that they've given the production rights to Jake Humphrey's co-owned production company, Whisper Films. They've already confirmed that. They've already confirmed that David Coulthard is, is going to be one of the hosts of said coverage, which is great news because DC was a very dependable, very versatile presenter on on, on BBC, in my opinion, at least. I think of the pundits they had over mm. there, I think Eddie Jordan could be guilty of a little bit too much going for the kind of shock jock angle. Um, yes. But I think Coulthard, especially when he was alongside Martin Brundle in the commentary booth, he's a very... Um, surprisingly perceptive pun i say surprisingly because it doesn't really fit with his actual image or what people associate with him but i always feel like he was very fair he mm-hmm. would call things as he saw it he mm-hmm. wouldn't go too over the top he wouldn't get too uh nationalistic and jingoistic no. as um you know as some commentators and some broadcasters can get almost <coughs> <out of> enthusiasm. <coughs> exactly um but I always, I always felt like him and Martin Rondon worked really, really well together. I mean, look at some of the races they called, especially that Canadian Grand Prix 2011. Oh, God. They had to work very hard to fill the time in that, what was it, a four-hour rain delay, and then call the finish of one of the most epic yeah. Grand Prix of modern times. I think they handled that spectacularly. Yeah, if you ever want to see that, that is world-class sports broadcasting to be able to time fill so effectively for over an hour during that rain delay. Um, it's one of the one of the actual gem parts of why Canada 2011 is such a special race. Is not only because the race was a complete epic in its own right, basically the Michael Bay movie of Formula One races, <laughs> but at the same time it had a one-hour rain delay that wasn't boring, which is just the most amazing thing you could ever wish to see. So... Yeah, if they were going to pluck one of the BBC guys to come over for Channel 4, I probably would have picked DC myself. Mm. So, yeah, on the whole, I think Channel 4 are going about it the right way. 
if you ever want to see the 10 point plan quickly google it it's 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 look at it on channel 4 images like it's it's easy to find and there's a lot of intriguing and good stuff in there like educational programs they're trying to you know to do no red button extras or anything like that they they're very to the point and i do like the direction that they're going in and I've, everything i've seen so far is thumbs moving up in my yeah. direction so at least, at least from my perspective at least so i, I don't I'm, think they've really done anything that's, that's massively questionable in my regard no, not at all um how long do you guys think free-to-air coverage could last in britain because back when bbc first got the rights and then sold it off to Sky. When they sold it off to Sky, Sky was looking to essentially monopolize the world's F1 TV coverage because as of right now, they own the TV rights to F1, not only in Britain, but Germany, Italy, uh, Latin America, all of Southeast Asia, and Australia. Yeah, it's that's a good question. And the that's honest answer right is... The, 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 the honest answer I have for you for that is... I'd say maybe 10 years at the most. And the reason why I said that is because the industry is, is changing. And you've told me before, King, that it's that live sport is like the last bastion of television yeah, really in is. that regard. And if, if Bernie ever wakes up or maybe someone that is a, a production company can come out and say that, yeah, maybe we should go down the internet road with this thing and they could put a paywall behind it. If, if they knew that could make money, then they would have done it by now. And well, that's I the think, big thing, isn't I, I it? Think that day, I think that day is coming. I mean, we saw the WWE do it with the WWE Network a couple of yep. years ago now, and that's actually worked out to be great. Once they've got over a million subscribers on their, on, on their network now already as it is, um, which is you know a way of replacing the kind of archaic pay-per-view model they had for, for decades. So I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, I'd say... I mean, when Netflix's own CEO is coming out and saying that he reckons TV will be obsolete in 15 years, as we know it, I wouldn't maybe go that far. But if if if, if there's one sport that's kind of archaic when it comes to its broadcasting, it's Formula One. Oh, absolutely. Which, which is funny yes. when it comes to the whole thing. So that might that might you know stop the bleeding for a little well, bit. But the th the thing yeah. is about it uh, is that the thing that's keeping free to air kind of hanging on in this country is that the viewing the viewing figures on free to air are still massively higher than on subscription channels like sky like for example uh an average sky broadcast of a formula one race in the uk will get what a three million about three million maybe? yeah about and three, on bbc yeah. they used to average nine ten eleven million plus Mm -hmm. So that's what's keeping it on free to air. The sheer availability of it, the fact that so much of the population can watch the program. And if you go to, like, for example, another series that's done this recently is um, V8 Supercars in Australia. They've gone or they signed a deal with, I think it was Fox or Foxtel in Australia yeah. for the last year. Uh, similar sort of thing. They had a certain amount of races on free to air. And yeah. the whole schedule and everything wink, wink, on... Nudge, nudge, Foxtel is a subsidiary of News Corp, which also owns Sky. That Shocker. doesn't surprise me. This is Rupert Murdoch's <laughs> evil empire. This is... He probably owns everything in the world. I'm expecting the world to, you know, like the epic World War Three, not to come down to a battle between nations, but a battle between, like, Virgin, Tesco, and News Corp. <laughs> It'd be like the three corporations that take over the world, and maybe yeah. Manchester City will be the fourth one. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, I mean, on the whole, I, you're absolutely right. I think I can agree with that. It's 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 a it's a ticking time bomb. And like I said, F1 is an expensive sport. 
Channel 4 is actually pretty profitable at the moment. That's what I can afford to, to take this on. How long they take it on for, I don't know. The problem is they can't compete with Sky because Sky are making bank on their Sky Sports. Like, the thing is, Sky makes most of its money on sports. They don't get it mm. on, you know, they, they, yeah, they got their, your average, you, you got your phone bills, your, your broadband and whatnot. But at the same time, they've also got a sports package that costs £30 a month that people will pay for because they can't live without their football. Exactly. So, you know, when you bundle that in, you're going to have a lot of suckers out there that don't know what the internet is. Now, <laughs> let, I, I don't condone privacy. I don't, I don't condone piracy on this podcast, but let's be real here. I look at it like, so who's got a stream for this race? Yep. So, so when more people especially start... for guys our age who can't yeah. stump up like ten or a month, like I, I can just about do it for the WWE network that you've just mentioned. But yeah. for a lot of people, it's just it's like I remember when the BBC Sky deal was announced and the comment vitriol on the BBC website was huge. But there was a section of people going, "Oh, well, if you're a true fan of F1, you'll pay, you'll pay whatever." And there were a lot of people going, "Well, for some of us, that's not a question. We physically can't." No. We'd want to, but we just can't justify it. You know, if we're paying rent, food, blah, especially if you're students. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, exactly. You you know that feel. We were we were recently there. We all are. King still is. Yeah, exactly. I'm still there. You, you just can't justify it. So that's the big issue with uh, subscription TV services. And, you know, internet services, like the, way, the reason Netflix has been such success is, and the WWE Network, there's so much stuff on there that you can justify paying it. Like on the WWE Network, you get every single pay-per-view on there. Mm-hmm. You get a, an archive of hundreds of thousands of pay-per-views mm-hmm. stretching all the way back for about 30 years. Imagine if F1 did something like that. You get uh, exclusive TV shows on the network. Uh, you get TV shows that go out in America, stuff like NXT goes out on there. So you basically have so much content all in one place yeah. that it, it, it almost becomes, if you are a fan of that, you can't not have it. And, so, and, and, we're, and we're a market that leans towards paying for convenience. So exactly. it, it only makes the most sense for that to be kind of thing. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes five, ten years down the road. Yeah. But um, well, I mean, the yeah, offering okay. that they have right now is fairly lackluster. Like I paid for uh, the F1 Extra service for mm. this year, which offered, I think, live timing, some exclusive videos and that was pretty much it and it was fairly lackluster and for about i'm gonna cancel it for this season and i'm gonna consider signing up for uh wrc plus which has basically the entire world rally championship coverage for the entire year for the same price onboard footage aerial footage everything live yep. tasty so you know it's good stuff it, it, the problem is, is that F1 would never do that because they don't have to because they're trying to monopolize all their coverage and they make their money that way. Well, so let's what, be honest. Why, I would think, they, why, would, I th- why would they bother to be innovative when they got guaranteed money off the TV coming in still? Yeah, exactly. Well, That's Bernie the- Eccleston has kind of showed... I mean, I know he's not exclusively the guy, but I think he's showcased very much the FOM attitudes in saying that he knows or he wants to go after the older generation, the guys who are probably keeping traditional television going because mm-hmm. the older generation are living longer. You know, there's not enough of us yet to kind of facilitate that transition. And those are the guys Bernie's are interested in. The, the older guys with money to burn who don't mind paying whatever for a subscription tally package, you know, even if they pay, because you have to pay extra for the F1 channel on Sky Sports. Mm-hmm. But he's going after those people who can afford the expensive watches that are sponsoring the cars or whatever, or providing the engines in Red Bull's case. That's weird. Um, or, 
you know, he's going after those people with the disposable income who just say, oh, you know what? I'll spend whatever on F1. He's going after the people who will spend whatever they have to to watch F1. He's not necessarily caring, and FOM aren't necessarily caring about us lot, the guys who maybe would, but we kind of physically can't a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Yo, uh, we're going to take a quick musical break while I get my Johnny Walker and Rolex out. Uh, we'll see you after this one real quick. Are you back after your Johnny Walker Rolex and cigar? If so, strap right in for part two of the podcast. And oh god, here we go. It's it's that what time it, of the Dre? it's that time of the year again. It's it's January. There's not much of a story. Someone stuck a microphone in John Tox's face again, and we've got to talk about refueling. Oh, oh, that thing that most world motorsport can get right, but F1 can't. It's <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> Sadly, folks, it's that time of year again. Somebody interviewed John Tot King, and the long and the short of it was they were going to try and put refueling talk back on the table again for this season or for next season. Well, fill me in, King. Silly season. Uh, basically, Todd said that refueling would be back on the table for inclusion in the F1, maybe for 2017. And the team bosses are not happy about this at all. No. <laughs> now, why would they not be happy about this, King? Uh, for various reasons, like obviously cost was cited, uh, safety was cited, which to me I find partly ridiculous. Yeah. And then uh, mm-hmm. uh, Claire Williams also cited that it's not good for F1's image, that it could it could make F1 look like a gas-guzzling sport. I'll <laughs> <laughs> no, just say, that might be the funniest thing that Claire Williams, your bae, has ever said, King, <laughs> quite frankly, because like, it's like, I'm going to address this one real quick here. F1, a sport of this year, is going to have a 21-race calendar this year. The biggest F1 season ever. That's a carbon footprint. In a sport where you do thousands, if not millions of air miles, carrying big, weighty equipment around the world, and you're worried that the fuel is going to hurt the sport's image as a gas guzzler. Are you kidding me? F1, you know, that real sport for the working-class hero. (laughs) 
<laughs> of course. That's totally what I was thinking. Look, Claire, I'm sorry. No, that's not how this works. That's like, not a valid like, one. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, she's a smart woman. I don't know how she could come out with something so stupid. Like, <laughs> like, like, how did you get to the coat? How did he get to Kota, Claire? What, Rowan? Like, no, <laughs> that's not how this works. To be um, honest, in amongst all that, of those concerns, I mean, as King pointed out, you know, well, as we all pointed out, the uh, concern about the image, I'm sorry, for Formula One, the ultimate playboy display of excess and sporting excess, really. Worrying about gas guzzling? Uh, I'm sorry, that's kind of... The, you've kind of... The horse bolted about 60 years ago when Grand Prix racing started on that one. Um Safety? Well, I don't know. I'd argue against that, but go on. <laughs> to a degree. Yeah, to a degree. We're not, um, having, we're not having James Hunt plowing the grid guards every week. We're not quite as bad as what we were in the 70s. No, exactly. But, exactly. Uh, I mean, things have changed. Anyone um, with half a brain cell would know that's just not how this sport works. <laughs> no, of course. Uh, and the, uh, I mean, safety? Hmm. I, I dispute that to a degree, considering most other major motorsport series in the world managed to do refueling okay. Uh, NASCAR, IndyCar, the World Endurance Championship, GT Series around the world. All of them! All of them, effectively. Even the British Touring Car used to, Championship used to do it when they had... Uh, I don't know if they actually did fuel when they did their feature race pit stops in the 1990s. Anyway, basically, it, at the top level, safety, you know, it's going to... V8 Supercars, of course, does it. Uh, but I think the big issue here, the big problem, and the reason why most of the teams aren't happy with it, is that... It's going to be a lot of cost. It's going to be more changes to the car, having not long ago outlawed refueling. I mean, when did refueling go away? Uh, 2010. 2010, there you go. So five years later or six years later, it's potentially coming back. And I think the big, the big thing is it's going to be a lot of cost. It's going to be a lot of unnecessary changing in that. For what benefit? Um, I mean, IndyCar, for example, manages to add... Or have refueling add an extra element to the Grand Prix that oh, to their races, and that's alongside tire strategy and things like that. But when F1 used to have refueling, it didn't seem to work the same way. Everyone kind of settled into a similar pattern, it probably because the, it didn't work the same way because IndyCar had oval races where you had to stop for fuel anyway. Like mm. there was no getting around that. F1 obviously made that problem avoidable by having no refueling for the last five years already. So they now, had to have fuel tanks that could last the entire race. Exactly. So yeah. for me, for me, like I have no major qualms with refueling. The the issue I have is that the fans are obviously bloodlusting for this to come back because it's another reminder of the 2000 era, which many people still moonshine like no tomorrow. <laughs> Nostalgia. The, nostalgia, everybody's favourite buzzword of the week. But <laughs> the thing is, is that people obviously just want to have the illusion of unpredictability. Like, mm. if they had refueling in this era, it would not have made a damn difference to the championship because Mercs were just that sodding good. Putting Vettel on an alternate fuel strategy was, wasn't going to suddenly make him a winner. That, that That's not how this has ever really worked. So, for me, it's... I don't see what you really gain from having refueling in Formula 1 other than the illusion of unpredictability and the illusion of... And I put this in inverted commas. You can't see it behind behind this, uh, obviously, the video or in case you're listening to it on download. The illusion they're going flat out. It seems that refueling tends to be the most decisive issue around for pretty much no gain or loss whatsoever mm. because... It seems to be decisive not only within like 
the organizing body and the team owners, but also the fans themselves. There's no middle ground here. It's either it seems like you either like it or you d- absolutely hate it. It seems to be more decisive than Donald Trump right now. <laughs> <laughs> Make F1 great again. Um, um, okay. Yeah, make the cars go flat out. It's none of that car management bollocks we've had for 30 years already. Let's, make, let's see these guys at exactly. their best and have drivers make more mistakes, even though well, we all mock Pastel when he does. But, um, well, you isn't know. this a case of, once again, the internet has about 50 million different ways to fix F1? Yeah, and none of them no. actually feasible. No. <laughs> or realistic, or would actually make a difference. It's, no, it's just one really. of those things where... We all saw it in the GPDA survey last year, which pretty much went to prove that F1 fans have no idea what they actually want their F1 to be. And there's a million different scenarios to me as to what they want F1 to be. And refueling, I've I've watched enough F1 through the last 10 years to realize... Changing fuel at pit stops really didn't make a much, didn't really make much of a difference to me. Like I don't think I've never watched the race, sat down and thought, hmm, if they bought the refueling back, this would certainly have made the race better. I don't I, think so, especially when you've got alternate compound tires now, and I think the idea to have a free choice of the compounds for any given weekend next year, I think yeah. that's a good move. That yes. further mixes up the strategy. That's the sort of thing they should be looking to do. Yeah. So that you know, there's feasible, like it's like. It's feasible alternatives are out there. People are working to try and, and try and make this work. The problem is it's the ones that people don't like yeah. because people have used Pirelli as a scapegoat for years enough as it is. So for me, refueling, I'm with King on this one. I don't see what it brings to the table. I don't see what it adds to, to anything to re- you know, really in terms of a race and whatnot. So yeah, it'll inevitably get shot down because the team bosses don't like it and i can can see why because again they're asking to spend even more money in a sport that's already ludicrously expensive now Uh, here's the thing refueling could be cost effective but the team owners choose not to make it cost effective um, because back what's the kicker king go on yeah back when they had refueling uh the fueling rigs that they used were um Hydraulically powered. They were like refuelers that you see, you'd probably see like at Heathrow Airport that they use to refuel like massive airliners. While in IndyCar and the WEC, they use cheaper gravity fed fuelers. So it's fed by, you know, just, you know, the force of gravity and it's fairly cheap. It only takes like two people to operate while the airport refuelers needs about four or five crew members to operate. Yeah, we all, we all saw those back in those days of F1 where you'd have four people on the fuel gun, and if a fuel gun didn't go right, you'd have like half a dozen people in the back trying to fix it and whatnot, and it was ludicrous. So, yeah, I mean, there is, there again, there's alternatives here, but the teams don't like alternatives. They, they, they don't like, like the status change. quo. They don't like change. Most, most of us don't like change, so, <laughs> you know... It's not going to happen, you know. It's just, it's just that time of the month again. It's like it's F one's time of the month, so to speak. So to talk, <laughs> to talk about refueling, and it's, and it's never, it's never actually going to happen. And like no. that certain event, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. So we're going to move on to another woman. Oh, great uh, segue. Um, Susie Wolf, the newly retired former Formula One test driver and DTM driver, launched a new incentive, um, or at least a new program at the Autosports event this past weekend called the Dare to be Different initiative. Um, King, tell us a bit more about it, would you? Because, you know, this is, this, is, this is like your makeshift Susie Wolf report for the last time. <laughs> it oh, lives on. I, I, I thought it would 
die a sweet, sweet death. Nope. <laughs> She's still it relevant, King. She's still relevant. You can't get rid of her. <laughs> yeah, so the Dare to D Be Different initiative launched by Susie Wolf in association with uh, the British Motorsport Association. You know, it hopes to encourage young women to be interested in participating in motorsport, not only as drivers, but also behind the scenes as, you know, mechanics, engineers, you know, the whole picture. And they plan to do this through by having, like, I, I think they have five scheduled events this year that they're going to have at karting circuits to introduce girls to karting and motorsport in general. And alongside that, they're also going to have an online community where girls can come in contact with, you know, ambassadors with the program, Claire Williams, Susie Wolf, Rachel Brooks, and uh, Alice Powell. Hmm. Yeah, now, now, this sounded all great on paper, the announcement was was very slick, and, you know, there was a nice little selfie booth you could get in the Autosport show, because everyone loves a good selfie, mm -hmm. um, and it was all, it all looked nice, the announcement was pretty shrewd, I liked it, I read, I read it over, it seemed pretty reasonable on paper. Couple of problems, though, King, would you, would you like to explain the first one, it was mainly to do with the website itself? Uh... To access the online portion of the initiative, you need to pay a community fee of £25 a month. I mean, £25 a year. I was going to say, if it was, if it was £25 a month, <laughs> oh, I, God, I think no. it just jumped out of the window from now. But yeah, you have to pay £25 a year to access the online features of this initiative. Now, let's be real here again. Motorsport is not a cheap sport to invest in. It no. is hard to get into motorsport on a grassroots level. I mean, if you've ever watched any form of grassroots racing, what's the first thing a driver or racer does? Thank their sponsors, because yep. they're the ones that are keeping them there. Yep. It's, it, it, it's a hard sport to get into on any level. We've all seen the story of Lewis Hamilton and his dad having to work three jobs to keep his son's dream alive. We've all heard those stories. So let me get this straight. In a, in a story that in a sport that struggles on a grassroots level you're introducing an incentive that you have to pay to be a part of who said this was a good idea <laughs> probably uh, the website designer no clue, <laughs> no clue. i got to make my cut bruh <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't think the the fee is as extortionate as it could be i mean generally no. if you are in motorsport that's the sort of fee that you could get off a sponsor at a low level. But at the same time, the ethos doesn't sound right. If you're in It doesn't send the right message. No, it doesn't. Not at it, all. It doesn't. It's it's more it's more the message than the price itself mm. that you know, we should be encouraging like ultimately they want to encourage participation. Make it free. Like you give people as much of a net as possible for them or at to least be have a free sign up option. Yeah, like maybe even just like a free trial for the first year just, just to see if you're interested or something along those lines because like telling people to get involved at that kind of price point, especially if you're under the age of 18 and you probably can't afford to just drop 25 quid on something like yeah, that. You're already like, paying for a load of tires and that in karting, for example. Like, how are you going to convince your parents that this is, this is actually worthwhile, if, especially if you believe you're actually any good? Because if you think you're any good, you'd say, why would you need that kind of incentive? Mm. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I mean, and as a nonprofit organization, they can accept donations. And right beside the sign up for, you know, the 25 pound a year, they have an option for it's like, oh, would you like to make a donation? You could give a do donation to the organization. 
But what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> Hold up, like, what? The, Hang on. What's the, what's the point? What's the point in them having a, a pay option? Why not have a free sign-up and then if you get something out of it, then you have the choice to donate? You know, like a Patreon page or something. <laughs> plug, 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 plug. Or even like a crowdfunding campaign or something along those lines. Absolutely. Like, like that would have made a lot more sense than going down the straight-up subscription model because yeah. like, nobody likes subscription costs unless it's their Xbox Live account. That's just one of these things. <laughs> Like, uh, unless you absolutely have to pay it or you see the value in it, if you can yeah. help it, you won't pay that kind of money. And That's a difficult thing. I mean, they, 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 you hit it right there. Seeing the value in it, a lot of people will be skeptical coming out because they know that it's motorsport is a difficult world enough as it is to encourage women to get involved. I mean, um, the This Girl Can campaign has done pretty a pretty good job encourage participation at a grassroots level for women in sport in general so i kind of see this i thought this was where they were going with this in terms of a motorsport specific thing mm-hmm. um the subscription thing sounds out the wrong message and i think you know maybe a, a cheaper or at least a free option with premium features to sign up for if you have the money to do so I think that would probably work better to get people in because then you get testimonials flowing and you yeah. get a good rep. You know, it's it's the basics of building a brand how, in a company. How any young business would start, you get the word out there. Exactly. You don't open up and charge us a, a a big fee to get people through the door. I guess they're probably the banking on the Susie Wolf name. Yeah, like yeah, but- and the testimonials they get from people like. Uh, like I said before, Alice Powell, Rachel Brooks, and Claire Williams saying that this is an organization that girls should be a part of. Yeah, that's one thing. But also the other problem I have with something like this is that how are you going to get people of the world to come to Scotland for these events? <laughs> well, that's another thing. It's not meant for people outside the United Kingdom because of their deal with the MSA. It's only British. It's British based. It's yeah. only for Britain. That, again, that doesn't help. <laughs> But I guess I'm, it's a start for in the UK. If if Susie Wolf's obviously British, she's raised here. She's trying to give back to the grassroots in this country. So I yeah, suppose, I I get the vibe from it that she is trying to make things not. She's trying to help uh, women coming up in British motorsport and have them sort of avoid some of the problems that she probably faced coming up through. And I think overall the ethos of it is fantastic. Isn't this? I mean, I'd much rather have initiatives like this than mm-hmm. an all-female Formula One series with four cars on the grid that no one cares about and no yes. female driver actually wants to enter anyway because as uh, you know, another a British club racing driver, uh, Abby Eaton, correctly said, no female race driver wants to be the best female driver in the world. They want to no. be the best race driver in the world. It, it's, it's a matter of inclusion. It's exactly. a matter of inclusion. Exactly. And you've and, and got to start that by opening up the doors on a grassroots level. And I only hope yeah. that this doesn't curtail what is a great incentive and what, you know, on paper is a fantastic thing that's, you know, that we do need a, a more female presence in Formula One on, on every level, in my opinion. And, mm. you know, it's not just a driver's perspective. It's, I mean, I mean, how many women do you see in the average F1 team garage, for example? There's not many out there. Well, I so, think... Sorry, you know, I think uh, a, a organisation like, like this should promote the various uses of, of, of roles for women in sport. I mean, this would be a perfect way to deal with the whole grid girls debate that we've been having in the last year or so. You know, 
if you're a woman in motorsport, that's not the only thing you have a role for in motorsport, to sit around looking pretty. You can be like, for example, Alina Gade, who is a Le Mans winning engineer for Audi. Be someone like a Kim Stevens, who was the um, who pe- most people will know as the woman who got drenched with champagne by Lewis Hamilton on the Abu Dhabi podium. But she's, uh, I believe, a strategist and an engineer for the Mercedes Grand Prix team. Yep. Be someone like an a Claire American. Who- yeah, as well. Uh, of uh, course. <laughs> Had to Love get that, that plug one in there, there King. Yeah. <laughs> Had to get that one in there, didn't you, King? <laughs> by the way, she's one of ours. Yay! <laughs> but yeah, all that sort of thing. I know. I I'm glad that the the campaign. I mean, I was there on the Thursday at Autosport when it was launched, and there was a good a good sort of buzz on the ground about it. it was It was a good enthusiasm, and if it persuades even some women to get into motorsport at whatever level they want to, as a uh, staff member, engineer, team owner, racer, whatever, then more power to it. Mozeltov to it. It's done its job. Yes, and I can only hope that the the approach they've taken, despite that, I just, which I still don't think is the right move, I still wish them the greatest success. Absolutely. Uh, and... I hope they can they can raise the female profile of motorsport in general because I still see many people on their timelines talk about how you know the female presence isn't really a thing and they want to play the whole reverse sexism game with me and I don't like it. Let's uh, put it this way. Mm. I hope that this campaign and I have a feeling this campaign can be far more progressive for women in Formula 1 than signing Carmen Jorda. Yes. Yes, and we'll talk yes. about that in the Q&A section. There's a very interesting question regarding that, and we'll be talking yeah, about that in a bit. <laughs> what, what was shocking to me, like, at first I was going to make a video about this, but then it just expanded to a full-blown report. I haven't finished the report yet, but the participation numbers for women in Britain are horrendously low. Really like, the are. MSA's entry-level single-seater championship, formerly Formula 4, now MSA Formula, over the past seven seasons, it, there's been about one female driver for a about 40 men. Yeah. Wow. And it that's, can sort of, that's at the entry the, level. So that's about 2.5%. Yeah, and that can sort of... I think in a way that can sort of backfire into a sort of pressure on whoever does come through. We sort of end up getting behind those who do come through. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, uh, Sophia Fleursch, the uh, the young German driver, made a big impact in Ginetta Juniors last year, but then quit halfway through the season. And I believe she's looking to do a full season in German Formula 4 this year. Uh, and yeah, she, she has Formula 1 ambitions. She's already but... signed on. She's... Yeah. Huh? Yeah, she's already signed on to do a full season. Right. Yeah, there we go. And I think a lot of people, I think sometimes there are so few women in these major roles that the ones who do get there feel like they're under a, in a real sort of goldfish bowl. You know, mm-hmm. because we, we sort of, a lot of us got behind Susie Wolf, I think, because, hey, it was better than nothing. No disrespect to Susie at all. She's, no. you know, a, a talented talented race driver. She had her place. She did well in DTM for what she had there. But she, in terms, I think a lot of people, as you said, Dre, it's almost the other way. It's rather than knocking them because they're a woman, you praise them even more so than they probably deserve because they're a woman and you won't see a woman at the top level. So it's very hard. And the ultimate aim of this campaign, I hope, is to almost take the gender out of it and make yes. talent the only consideration. Gender, it shouldn't matter. In an ideal yes. world, it shouldn't. Unfortunately, it does. Let's try and minimise that and make it about the most talented drivers making it to the top. Male, female whatever yeah like uh like non-binary as well i'm sorry yeah yeah, for like a certain perspective 
I know how they feel because being an American, there are very few Americans. Mm -hmm. When there's an American, they get extra scrutiny yeah. or praise because they're an American. Yeah, and that shouldn't be a thing. But uh, yeah, absolutely agree to both of you on that one. Speaking of talented drivers, Pastor Maldonado. <laughs> Again, I segue Good so one, Dre. well, don't I? Yeah. Um, so I've mentioned this before off the air. I said before how I, I call this segment the, Red the Renault shit because... There's almost guaranteed to be a story coming out of Endstone with F1 these days because there's it's never quiet down that part of the F1 world no, for some reason. Like every podcast, there's something going on down there. And here's the latest story: Pastor Maldonado apparently on the brink of losing his seat because his sponsors are paying late, uh, and it basically goes hand in hand with uh, the rumors going around that Kevin Magnussen was seen in Endstone last week talking to. Renault about a potential seat, maybe a third driver role, etc. Now, <sighs> the darling of Twitter returns. Uh, I, I don't like talking <laughs> about Pastor because like, there's no middle ground on Pastor. No, no, Maldonado. I wasn't talking about Pastor. I was talking about Kevin Magnussen, uh, the greatest uh, I'll, driver I'll, not in F1. I, I, I was getting to that. <laughs> like, like it's it's like there's already one thing with Pastor going on because like there's no middle ground on him. It's either everybody like wants to defend him at every given opportunity, while on the other end, everybody can't wait to bash him whenever whenever he messes up. And then you put, or that, even when he doesn't, yeah, even when he doesn't to a degree, because he was, his name was thrown around a lot last year when half of the time it wasn't actually his fault that he, you know, he was taken out of a race or whatever. So yeah. there's no middle ground on Pastor, and when you combine that with Kevin Magnussen, who is a real internet darling driver, you know, it, it, Magnussen's not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but he wasn't that great the one year he was in F1 in the first place. So when you combine Pastel's situation with Kevin's situation, it's a bit like making one of those volcanoes you see in those science experiments in America. <laughs> you're going to get an overflow and you're going to get an eruption of hype train because people are desperate to see another youngin in Formula 1 again. Like, yeah. I, I've said it before, like, it used to be the talk of, oh, you know, we don't want pay drivers in F1. Now it's the talk of, I don't want that pay driver in F1. Yeah. Like, so we've, we've become more specific over the years. It's like, we like we want young talent in F1. No, not that one, that guy. Not Jolian Palmer. <laughs> no, that guy. Like, Jolian Palmer is 24, and people are talking like he's 36 or something. So, you know, it's it's already a rough enough situation it is, and you know, the, the perception of pay drivers in Formula 1 has never been a particularly healthy one, but... King, you're the Magnuson fan around here. <laughs> no pressure. You're the Magnuson meme maker on this. You, you you talk about this a bit more than because I I okay. I, I it, it's a confusing one. On on the Kevin Magnuson side of things, I don't see him getting the racy. It seems more likely that he's going to become Renault's new reserve driver because they signed on the reserve driver to the race seat. That's true. That's true. Jolly and Palmer, of course. Yeah, and on. The pastor side of things, it's so much more complex and nuanced than anyone on the internet's making this out to be. Number one, PDVSA, billion-dollar OLA company. The reason why they're late on payments is because Venezuela is going to, it's, it's terrible right now. Inflation skyrocketing, their economy is on the brink of collapse, and PDVSA represents about half the country's economy. So when the rest of the economy is crashing, someone has to fit the bill, and that's pretty much them. 
Yeah. So with Venezuela's oil reserves and, and economy in general going down the shitter, of course, it's going to have a knock-on effect for Pastor, who is heavily sponsored by said company. Well, this um, sounds a lot like the situation with Mikhail Lotion, or however you mm. pronounce his surname. Um, yes. With and a similar thing with SMP Racing, who were sponsored by was it a Russian? Was it the Russian government or was it a Russian sort of high-up uh, businessy? Yeah, bank. Russian bank, uh, the SMP Bank, isn't it? Yeah, yep. and yeah, yeah. to even make an even more evident example, Felipe Massa had the same talk around him because he was sponsored by Petrobras, and they had an enormous bill at their at their doorstep last year. So that was obviously talk about Massa not being able to race next year, which yep. you know is not actually happening. But again, we've seen these stories come up before, but because it's pastor, I think people have reacted you know, more favorably in this regard or made more of a fuss about it because it's a guy that people don't really want to see in Formula One, even though while Pastor is no Romain Grosjean, he's no Nico Hulkenberg, he's not on that tier with those kinds of dudes. I don't think Pastor is anywhere near as bad as the internet wants to think he is. The problem is the internet still thinks this is 2012. I mean, when Grosjean mm. was announced at Haas, I genuinely saw people on Twitter saying, they, oh, they've just hired that guy who crashes on the first lap. I'm like, really? 2012 yeah. is four years ago now. Have you not paid attention to what Roman's been doing since then? And people don't talk about that absolutely exceptional run he made in the second half of 2013 where he was legitimately challenging for wins he was the yep. biggest threat and of course Vector he got that Vettel's podium run. last year for lotus yeah of on course. the same weekend they had bailiffs at their trucks yeah like <laughs> people forget grosjean is a top world-class driver there's mm. no doubt about that anyone that still wants to bury grosjean for 2012 is an idiot at this point in time quite frankly because they have they've clearly chosen selective memories to just not been paying to, attention yeah, they're, they're, they're not, they've not been paying attention. It's, it's as simple as that. And while Pastor, like I said, while Pastor is no prize, it's a situation where he's 31 in April. He's entering year six. If if he really was that bad, he would not still be here. Hmm. And like I said, he's entering year six of his F1 career now. Like, are we not all just bored of making Pastor jokes at this point? Like, I know it's an easy Twitter favorite from like 12 year olds on the internet, but. Pastor is not as bad as people like to think no. he is. At this point, he's he makes no more mistakes than any other driver in, in F1. In fact, yeah. after Sebastian Vettel's Mexico Grand Prix of last year, I have to say, I don't think Maldonado even had that, a race that was that bad all of last year. So. No, he didn't. And at least, as I said, I'd like to, at least, at least I like to think he did. I know I still remember the Sky Sports F1 team giving him a minus one out of 10 score for China, even though he was taken out by Jensen Button that day. So... People like to use the stick of the past to beat Pastor with. And, and let's not forget, Lotus yeah. have been on a real downer the last two years. 2014, their car was dreadful. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the car that made Roman Grosjean lose his temper in Singapore. And that's something you never see from Grosjean. Yeah. Um, and 2015 was a lot better. But still, you know, there was a lot the worst of, of... The worst of big, the Merckx teams. Yeah, exactly. And there was still a big axe hanging over them over the unpaid bills. I mean, in was it in Japan? They couldn't get into their own hospitality. Yeah. I mean, that, that must have been a nightmare for the drivers. Yeah. So Maldonado came into that team in fairly difficult circumstances. So let's, let's put it to you this way. Would you rather see Pastor on the grid or would you rather see no Lotus team at all? Mm, End exactly. the discussion. I'm going to take another break before those words resonate with you. And we'll be back for the Q&A segment of the podcast.
back to the final segment of the Motorsport World One podcast this time around. Now, time for your questions in the Q&A section of the show. Thanks to everybody that sent a question in, and we will tackle them as follows. I'm going to start right at the top with an IndyCar question from good friend of the show, Mr. Daniel Brennan. Hello, sir. Uh, who says... Seeing as Helio, TK, and JPM are, are getting on a bit in age and may retire within a few seasons, who do you guys see as the top three young prospects to take their places in Penske and Ganassi once they're retired? I'd personally have Newgarden, Karam, and seriously, Connor Daly, <laughs> simply because they will have a lot of IndyCar experience, but I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts. So, we're talking about Penske, they have a couple of older gents on their team, most likely Helio Castroneves and Juan Pablo Montoya. We've obviously got, you know, TK, who's, I think, touching 40 now yep. uh, as yeah. one of their drivers as well. Scott so, Dixon's fairly senior as well. I think D- he's Dixon, in his mid, mid-30s. Dixon's is up Dixon's up there in age. You know, it's... it's we've, we've talked about this on the podcast before, King. IndyCar's kind of an old man's game because it's a borderline spec series. You know, the more experience you get, most likely the better you're going to end up being. Um, so where do you see it? Because I think it's fair to say Joseph Newgarden is one of those names. Yeah, Joseph Newgarden's one of those names, but I think one name that was left out, James Hinchcliffe. He's probably yes. the top of everyone's guy who's currently not in a big team because he chose to left Andretti. That's true. To Smith- and, he was, Peter- and he was a race winner in that Andretti team. Yeah, he yeah. was a race winner. He's number one on the top of any big team list to get signed to a big team. Yeah, I mean... I mean, you don't really associate Hinch with that because he's 28 and he's been around for a good while now. But yeah, Hinch, in in the context of IndyCar at 28, that actually is still pretty young for IndyCar. So yeah, like I can I can totally buy Hinchcliffe being one of those dudes because you know he he walked away from a very prolific, obviously one of the most prolific IndyCar outfits in Andretti as a race because he, he wanted to be the big fish, mm, so to yeah. speak. He didn't really want to um, um you know compete constantly against you know guys like Ryan Hunter Ray and you know a Marco Andretti, obviously a very very strong consistent team, and you know he wanted to be the big guy at, at uh, Smith Peterson. So if I mean, Hinchcliffe's one of those guys. Joseph Newgarden had a fantastic season last year as a real breakout star of the of, of, of the series. Obviously, Graham Rahal had an uh, unbelievable season for Honda, pretty much carrying the whole of all of Honda Motorsport on its back <laughs> yeah. for that calendar year, given how bad the MotoGP team was and how McLaren Honda got along. You know, the, the one saving grace was Graham Rahal almost winning the IndyCar Championship last year. So, with that being a thing, I think. I mean, if you've got anyone, anyone, to, anyone else you want to add, Johnson, go for it. But um, well, there's a yeah. few from in uh, Indy Lights at the moment, and a guy who I believe is going to be making his race debut this year, reigning Indy Lights champion Spencer Piggott. I definitely like the look of him. He's going to be running a partial schedule with uh, Rahal Letterman Lanigan. Yes, I want that's to say, right. Yep. Because he'll be running St. Petersburg, the Indy Grand Prix, and the 500. Um, Ed Jones is also a very good shout from down there, as is Jack Solid Harvey. Mate. And. Um, a guy who, I mean, obviously people are going to know this guy from his exploits in F1, but I don't joke about this. Max Chilton, he's only 24. Did, excuse me? <laughs> My phone went off too early. I don't worry about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I thought it was just like, ding, ding, ding. You've got one there. 
Yeah, um, but, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the latest rumor going around today was that Chilton Chilton is talking to people and possibly the number eight car at Ganassi race in the uh, huge the part time car that uh, was shared by Sage Karam, who had a fantastic season last year and shared it with Sebastian Saavedra part time. There's a chance that Chilton, who is well funded, could take that number eight car next season. So we could see. So yeah, that'd be a huge for Ganassi Racing to have a fourth full-time driver out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the big thing with Max Chilton is that I, I remember uh, speaking to him at the Nismo LMP1 launch uh, last year. Uh, obviously, he was a driver with those guys before that program wrapped up. And he said he deliberately went to Indy Lights because he knew just how much of a culture change it was. And he also wanted to learn the ovals. And I think what's big with Max Chilton is not only did he do very, very well uh, on the road courses, as he was expected to do in Indy Lights, he also got his one and only win for the season on the oval at Iowa, which is Indeed. one of the more difficult and tricky ovals on the schedule. So I think that's alerted some of the big teams in IndyCar looking at this guy going, okay, we know this guy has road course pedigree, especially from Formula One. We know this guy's funded. Crucially, he's doing a very good job at switching over to the one thing that a lot of European drivers struggle with in America, which is oval racing. So I think that puts Max Chilton right in the prime position. It's Marshall Pruitt who's reporting this rumor about him going to Ganassi. Good, good source. A good source, yes. Apparently there's discussions been happening there. I think if he goes to the eight car, he's going to fly. I think yeah. he'd be awesome. That would be a great addition to the series. I'd love to see Max Chilton in IndyCar, where the cool kids are at these days in the yeah. motorsport world. Also, and sorry, it, it, it uh, should more. be noted. Oh, it should be noted right now that Max Chilton does not have a seat in lights this year. Mm. The other Carlin seat is going to the Puerto Rican Felix Sorales. Yeah. Yes. Uh, also, one more guy to speak about. Um, this is giving me a little bit of a left left field choice. Uh, Sean Rahal. Uh, not spelt the same way as Graham Rahal, uh, it's, but he has done quite a bit of uh, IMSA racing, mm -hmm. uh, normally in the LMPC class. Uh, he's run the SCCA Pro Formula, easy enough for me to say. And last mm -hmm. year, he did a partial schedule for eight-star motorsports in Indy Lights and won two races. Ah, So okay. he ran nine races and won two of them at uh, Indianapolis uh, and at mid-Ohio. So, in a partial schedule in Indy Lights, he did very, very well. We're talking about young guys here. This kid is 21 this Jesus. year. He's got plenty of time on his side. Uh, absolutely. There's a talent right there, one to keep an eye on for the future. Right. Next question from Miles Pardo on Twitter who asks, why are people criticizing Bernie when he's just saying what we know to be true, RE women? Now, this is a question that was based on the comments that Bernie made about a female driver being in Formula One a couple of days ago. I think it was on some kind of, I think it was a Canadian radio station he said these comments on, hmm. um, or something along those lines, where he basically said that if we had a woman in Formula One, she wouldn't be taken seriously anyway. Now, I know a couple of people reacted very angrily to this, and now I said it before, I think it's because it's come from. From Bernie and not from someone who's a bit more respected because I think another internet trait is people love to throw shade at Bernie even though he doesn't completely talk out of his arse all the time and it's just it, when he does it's pretty it, notable yeah it does and you know <laughs> I'm not saying he, he doesn't put his foot in it sometimes but this is not one of those occasions in my opinion and mm. I know Pippa Man reacted very angrily to this because she's a female driver in IndyCar obviously and she's done so much for charity as a female driver and obviously that's fantastic but 
I think Bernie's right. I just think it's you think we're looking in the wrong area. I don't think that the people within Formula One would be disrespectful towards a female driver. I think the fans would be the ones that would be disrespectful towards yes. a female driver if they were in it. We still live in a very bigoted, sexist society in the world. That's just how it is. And Example. Given, given how much shade we threw at Carmen Jorda just this past year, even though she was just doing her job at the end of the day, and how much was the cameras focused on Carmen Jorda over the course of the last year in Formula One, I don't think I don't think the disrespect is coming from F1. I think it's coming from us. That's mm. the problem. Yeah. Well, no, I think a, an example of what you were just saying there about how society's attitudes are still taking a lot longer to change than we'd like to believe. Um, here's a good example for you. The was it the FIFA 16 um, announcement that oh, yes. it would feature female teams? Mm -hmm. About there was about 500 comments on that post in about five minutes. 95% of them involved jokes about going to the kitchen and making me a sandwich. Yes. And that, oh, that's, just, that's, that's just the kind of society we live in still. Someone and it, shoot it, me in the head. And you know, people are... We live in a, in a society driven by Facebook likes and Twitter likes. And that's the kind of thing that will obviously get the banter side of of the sporting world on point by saying things like that. And I mean, if you ever see an ESPN Facebook post, you will always see the same things like, Oh, did you know, I sh the, the Seahawks should have ran the ball like based on the last year's Super Bowl, You could easily see things like, but could they beat the 96 bulls because of Steph Curry's recent run? Just destroying the NBA right now. Things like that. It's, just, it's the same kind of deal here. And, and, and people say, Oh, it's not sexism. It's just a joke. But it's, it's, it's a sexist joke. Yes, it's it's terrible. It's it's terrible, and you know this this stopped being funny about ten years ago. Like, <laughs> like if you want, like I know people are gonna say to me, oh well, people bash Carmen Jordan because she's bad, not because she's a woman. Yeah, which you did. Yeah, I'm sorry, you can't really differentiate on this one. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's just one of those situations where. We we are a, a bad society. Like we have, we are still a long way to go. I think from truly embracing a female driver. I think we've done better with it in other disciplines like Formula E, for example, and Simona, which I'll get to in the next question. But on the whole, I think Bernie's right. I just think he's he's right in the wrong source of area because mm. I think. I think I don't think I, I I never heard any negative stories about Susie being in Formula One from within the paddock itself. Yep, it was always negative stories from us as fans. And now, don't get me wrong, some criticism was valid for Susie, like her credentials and whatnot. But at the same time, we are still in a make me a sandwich kind of world. So, well, I mean, it's sort of like what you were saying earlier with the Maldonado thing, where there is no middle ground with him. Driver yeah. very similar to that, Danica Patrick. In NASCAR, oh my goodness, there is no middle ground with her whatsoever. She is either the shining hope for female drivers worldwide or an absolute joke who only gets any rides that she does in motorsport because she did a swimsuit issue of Sport Illustrated. And it, it does my head in because it's almost like, at the end of the day, all you want is people to judge her on her race results. And to be fair, I was being a little bit facetious with your comment about Carmen Jordan because when you did that Dre TV episode, you were saying... Jordan doesn't deserve the place in Formula One based on pure credentials. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the, the similar thing with Danica Patrick. You look at her record, it's nowhere near as bad as most people would say it is. It's not quite as good as other people would say. So it's an incredibly difficult. It's the, the women drivers thing again. They're either placed on an impossible pedestal mm -hmm. or denigrated just because 
bitch, get back in the kitchen. And yes. we still we are still a lot more Neanderthal than I think people like to admit. Hey, yeah. I got another question right. Yay. Ding ding ding. <laughs> yeah, and it's phone response means that was a good answer. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Do I get so, a cookie? It's in the mail. Hey. Um <laughs> Is your phone still going off, Thompson? For God's sake. No, it was it was my phone. That's I not my phone. Oh my god, oh. was <laughs> Oh Okay. It's, it's fixed now. Thanks, Ryan. Cookie buzzer. You, you, you real professional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't know why it's like, oh, anytime Johnson talks, let's just ring one. Yep. It's like, it's a message. Uh, <laughs> segueing nicely from talking about Simona briefly for a minute. A question from Josh Sutil, big fan of the show. Hi, Josh. Um, he says, Simona de Silvestro, discuss below par Formula E season so far. Should she, should she prioritize IndyCar? Interesting question because Simona, I don't think has scored a point in Formula E so far since she got there with two different teams. I think she, I know she filled in during the London finale in season one, and she's now full time at at uh, the Amlin Andretti team for season two. And I don't think she scored a point yet, and I think she's been kind of middle of the road um, since she got there. And it doesn't help that Robin Frins has had that podium in Putaraya. Um, during round two where Friends pretty much drifted his way on the last three laps to a podium finish during that race. So the potential's there by the looks of it. And you know, I know Robin Friends was, was a real internet darling as well a few years ago when he was knocking on, on, on the door of Formula One. But King, you know Simona well, obviously, from her IndyCar experience and you know doing a lot of racing in America. What do you figure of all this? Like, to be honest, besides that podium... Andretti has literally been middle of the road. Like that's, that's what I was going to say. Mm. Yeah, Friends is besides the podium, he has two tenth place finishes. Simona has an eleventh from eleventh and twelfth last year, and then this season thirteenth and eleventh. They've literally been middle of the road. I wouldn't say that they're. I wouldn't say that Simona's underperforming. Yes, she's underperforming compared to Robin Friends, but you could say that Andretti is a pretty average team. The, the car that they they brought is. is literally middle of the road yeah i'm inclined to agree with that i think my, 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 my first like one second johnson yeah, my right. first thought was basically that the team's been mediocre more mm. than she's been mediocre because the team has not really been that great and puteria in its own right was a race that was littered with attrition and carnage so no wonder robin friends had a higher finish than what was probably anticipated on paper yeah, go on, Adam. <laughs> uh, and also, just to say, I know Robin Frines has been kind of listed as a bit of a internet darling, but to be yeah. honest, he's kind of backed that up recently. I mean, last year, yeah. I um, or in, tw in 2015, before he hooked up with the Formula E team and, and, and got in over there, he was running in Blancpain GT Series in Europe. Admittedly, he was partnered with Lawrence Vanthor, which is who's probably one of the greatest GT drivers in the world right now. Um, but Frines at least has the record to back it up, and he's on—he's the man on current form. Whereas I feel like Di Silvestro has kind of been hindered by a career that's kind of gone a, gone a bit stop-start the last few years. Um, she was in IndyCar, she tried to chase the F1 dream, ended up doing no racing for almost a year, and then the money ran out over there, and now she's back in Formula E. That's another different kind of car that she's adjusting to. So maybe just you know, I know this is the sounds like the ultimate cop-out excuse for a driver, but maybe. A little bit more time to settle in to the style of racing in Formula E might be useful for Di Silvestro. And of course, this year, uh, what's really put the cat among the pigeons in Formula E is the limited amount of development. In the first mm. year, it was almost a spec series. This year, we've now had teams starting to develop. And I, 
you you fill me in on this one, Dre. And guys, I do not watch it as much as you guys do. Mm. Has there been a lot more of a golf in teams because of the technological developments? A little bit, a little bit. Like Edams is clearly the best team right now. Like mm. Edams is clearly number one. I think the apt team are a bit stronger than what they were last year. I don't know how much of that is down to Lucas being an actual fit for the series because Lucas is probably the best pound for pound guy in the series on paper. But there's been a bit more of a gap, and we're seeing a bit more consistency in the results compared to last year. Like we, on paper, it looks like Edams and Dragon Racing are the two best teams on paper. Like, is that fair to say, King? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that is exactly what I would put it. Yeah. But, I mean, the Dutchman is clearly talented. I'd probably say he's the most talented driver in the past five years not to make it to F1. Like, right off the bat, second year in, in Formula BMW in 2010, he won that. Then Renault 2.0 next year won that. 3.5 the year after that won that. And then just it, his career just stalled because he didn't have money. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know he, the the kid has been a success in just about everything he's put his hand to, but again, it's that age old Formula One problem. You know, you need you need a big amount of money to be able to compete on any level, and he's just one of those unlucky guys that's never had the open door for him. But uh, and it's a bit unfair because Robin is a really talented guy, and hmm. that's the only real yardstick for Simona. And Simona is a very solid driver in her own right, and it's just you're comparing her to a real stud prospect in Robin Friends, which is just a shame but I think it's more down to the Andretti team itself it'll be one of the known strugglers I think they're still on their fo- their season one um, power um, power unit and gear train because they've struggled so much to, to get and to get their season two one right so yeah they're seventh out of nine teams right now yeah so yeah it's, it's I mean Simona being middle of the field is actually about right given where the car is right now so you've got to put a bit more emphasis on car development this year because of the way the series has gone out so yeah i think that's more the reason than simona individually herself struggling i think that one podium makes it look worse than what it actually is so yep. to speak but that's just that's just how i look at it anyway um speaking of formula e richard evans have a quick question what do you make of the paris e-pre circuit location beautiful you you literally could not get a better location in paris unless it's you're stunning. Like racing down the champs elysees and they're literally racing around, you know, the military hospital in Valdez and Napoleon's tomb. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place to, to host this race. It, like it is perfect for what you want to do for a Parisian race. Circuit itself, not bad. Um, I think there's, there's there's definitely a couple of places where you can definitely pull a pass on people, which I think is good enough. Um, so I think we'll see some passing. I don't think it's going to be like the box circuit where it was very stop-starty and whatnot. We've like, Formula E's been a bit of a mixed bag for circuits so far, but uh, I think Paris has potential to be one of the better ones. So I don't know if anyone, anything, anything to that, Adam, but I think, I think it's a beautiful location for it, and I think there's potential for it to be a real gem in the crown for Formula E as a a race. Well, there's two things about this. Number one, the fact they're racing around Paris, it reminds me, I think there was a fancy street track in Paris in Gran Turismo 4, and it just sounds like that sort of fancy Gran Turismo circuit, which I love about it straight away. That was two, actually, yeah. And number two, yeah, exactly. And number two, this... These sort of tracks and races are exactly what Formula E have been going for since the start. They've used, and you've got to give them credit for this, they have used their USP of being this electric-powered championship. Therefore, we're quiet enough to race in inner cities where normally noise restrictions put big issues on motorsport. 
They've used that USP so well to put mm-hmm. themselves apart from any other series. You almost can't judge it alongside any other race series, which is probably a good thing compared to, you know, a lot of people criticized it for not being as fast, the cars not being as quick as other race cars. But really, Formula E have kind of forged completely their own, uh, you know, their niche in terms of motorsport. They are alternative. They are have this alternate technology in it. And as a result, they're using that to their advantage to have these very unique races in unique locations in major cities, bringing the motorsport to the masses right in the cities, not mm-hmm. out in these big Grand Prix circuits that are often miles and miles out of town and quite difficult for the general public to get to outside of driving. You know, public transport for most circuits in the UK is a bit of a nightmare, but th- they've used this niche so well. And I think going to Paris and having such an iconic uh, track location that features so many great historic uh, tourist attractions and that perfect it's exactly what Formula E should be about and well done to them yep couldn't agree more yeah, with that and I mean <laughs> Paris is our, Paris is undisputedly the birthplace of motor racing mm. you could actually ride the metro about like two stops down the line from the Formula E track to, to the park where the first motor race began there you go perfect well, so there you go. I'm sure that will get any intro music in there somewhere. Uh, so, <laughs> next question from Matthew Linder says, ask Adam how he thinks uh, Erebus will fare racing Holdens instead of Mercedes in this year's V8 supercars. I don't watch V8 supercars. Johnson, this one's all yours. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, um, Erebus Racing, for a bit of context here, have, because uh, I understand probably your listeners don't watch much V8 supercars either. Erebus Racing, for the last few seasons, have raced Mercedes-Benz uh, C63 AMG saloons. Now, V8 Supercars obviously was dominated for the longest time. It was exclusively open to Holdens and Fords. And they opened up the manufacturers a few years ago, and Nissan, Volvo, Nissan and Volvo joined. Um, and Mercedes joined with Erebus, but they weren't a factory team. So they built the cars with Mercedes permission, but Mercedes gave them no support along... To compare it, you know, Nissan have had a factory team, Volvo have had a factory team, and Volvo were challenging for the championship in their debut season in 2014. Whereas all along, Erebus and the incredibly charismatic Betty Klemenko, the team owner down there, one of the most popular in the pit lane down there, but they've really badly struggled without manufacturer support. And the thing is, Holden supports every single team that runs Holden cars to a degree. Obviously, it has its manufacturer team, uh, just like in Formula One, you know, you have Mercedes with the factory team, but you'll also have the other supported teams in terms of Williams, Lotus, etc. Um, so Erebus moved into Holden this year. It's a shame we lose a different shell and style of car in V8 supercars. But to be honest, from a competitive standpoint, if you're getting nothing from Mercedes and finishing 20th most races or getting something from Holden, historically probably the most successful mark in Australian racing, which is going to annoy all the Ford fans, but hey, those two are the dominant, you know, the dominant forces of Australian racing, then you can entirely see the logic behind them, and I think it's going to be a good move for them. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to add anything to that. That's, that's Johnson's domain. Thank God we've got him. Uh, yeah, Joseph Hudson asks, oh, and this is going to be one of those generic questions, how close do you think Ferrari will be to the Mercs? Well, anyone? Can I, sorry, can I just start this one? Go on. This was an interesting point that was made on, it was Radio Le Mans Formula One end of season review show. And they had on uh, Nick Damon, who used to work in the Formula One paddock as a reporter and obviously is now with Radio Le Mans. And um, uh, he made a very smart point 
which not a lot of people have picked up on. Overall, if you look at the average pace across the season, Ferrari were just as far off the pace of the Mercs in 2015 as Red Bull and Williams were in 2014. So effectively, the narrative was, you know, obviously they got more race wins and they were able to beat them in certain areas where the track suited. Um, But overall, what kind of more happened was that Ferrari became the second team behind Mercedes and the whole idea that they made a, you know, really massively closed the gap on Mercs and now they're going to be almost identical next year has kind of been blown massively out of proportion. Guys, opinions? Yeah, I pretty much agree with that looking at the times throughout every Grand Prix this year that Mercedes has pulled away from everyone, but Ferrari was the only team that kind of kept up. They haven't really gained on Mercedes. Yeah, because remember, you've got to put it into context that where Ferrari were at the end of 2014 was a country mile away. Like, the fact they've already, like, pretty much cut that deficit in half is a testament to how brilliant they, they did with their car this year. And they beat Mercs three times on merit as opposed to Red Bull when they beat them three times and Mercs had a really bad day at the office. Yeah. So, it like, that in itself is kind of like a moral victory for Ferrari. I don't see them having the legs to beat Mercedes next year because... Like, my word, that's that's a big ask. I mean, you're looking at, what, the better part of three, four tenths a lap? That's a big deficit to find, especially after the, a year which, under any circumstance, Ferrari would call a success. So, you know, it's it's a big ask for them from there. But, you know, I don't think they'll beat them. I think if they can just consolidate their second place from last season, I think they would take that. But obviously, Ferrari's aiming for the, for the big one because that's what Ferrari do, and that might be part of the problem. Um... Two more questions, I think, in this section here. We got one from Len Morrison, hi Len, who says, How vital is this upcoming F1 season for Red Bull's long-term future? Now, for me, the obvious answer is they're committed to 2020. Uh, unless they want to take a heavy financial penalty by quitting early. I think it's something like $100 million per year of, that they, they quit their contract early. King, is that right? Yeah, it's about right. Yeah, so it's it's a hundred million for every year they they pull out of the sport early before twenty twenty, which is the, the agreement they they committed themselves to. Five, I think, it was something like ten years ago they confirmed that. So, yeah, unless Red Bull want to pay a heavy exit fee to get out of Formula One, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Don't let what Eddie Jordan would tell you on that one. Audi's not going to buy them out anytime soon. Oh, well. Well, that's the only way they can get out of it if they sell their team to someone else. Yeah, but who's going to throw around that kind of money? Because I remember when they put like a 300, I think it was like a 300 million pound price tag on Toro Rosso, the junior team. Like, <laughs> like how much is the main team going to be worth? Like five, 600 mil? Like who's going to throw that kind of money at it? Like there's not enough rich idiots in the world for that to happen. Because <laughs> if, you, if you're that rich, you're probably not a fool. So, yeah. you know, I don't see like, like it would be nice for Red Bull to get back up there because you know they are a staple team, they are a likable team with Daniel Ricciardo and Daniel Kvyat, who had a, who had a fantastic second season in Formula, which not many people talked about this year. Was Kvyat mm. how great he was this year? But they have a very likable team, and I've always rooted for them because of well obvious reasons. And you know I'd like to see them do well, and I think it's good for the sport that they're there because I don't think Red Bull, I think Red Bull 
like is more important to F1 than F1 is to Red Bull because they are such a marketing juggernaut now, Red Bull, that I don't think they really need to be there per se. But um, yeah, when it comes to, to, to Red Bull, I, 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 I wouldn't worry about their future. They're going to be here for at least another four years unless they sell up, which I don't think anyone is going to do at the price points they're projecting. That's just my opinion. Um Casper asks. Casper asking on Twitter. Sorry for pronouncing your name wrong, by the way. Um, it's, a, it's a complicated one. Um, Hungarian names. What can you do? Uh, which F1 era or single season was, in your opinion, closest to perfection slash perfect balance in the sport? Now, this is something I think that was following on from something I tweeted about, talking about the the balance required. I think between technology and entertainment in Formula One to try and please everybody. Mm. Now. Has there been an era out there that's come close to that, or has there been any kind of era of bliss? King, you're the F1 historian out of the three of us. Any ideas? <laughs> oh, it, it, it's hard. I'd have to say it, it depends on what you mean by, like, balance. Like, if you count, mm. like, just parity between teams, I'd have to say the early to mid-70s. Right. If you have to if you have to say between parity between teams, also including manufacturers, I'd have to say the early 60s. That's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we're talking about an era of everyone that was like 40 to 50 years ago, because <laughs> like I've, I've been watching F1 since roughly 1999. And as far as I can remember, there was always some contentious issue in Formula 1, whether it be engines whether it be tires, whether it be suppliers, whether it be politics on any level. You know, obviously now in the modern era with Pirelli and the V8 sounds and things like that, and we've become a bit more of a bitchy society when it comes to what we want out of F1 because of social media and whatnot. And everyone like, can voice their opinions. Exactly. We know <laughs> the, the open forum that is the internet now, something we, did, we, just, we just didn't have 15 years ago when I first started watching. So... I can't think of an era of any kind of balance like that. I mean, I said King knows better. I'll be the first person to to admit King knows more about this shit than I do. Um, but from my experience, there's always been some contentious issue, and even more so now in, in the middle of a brand new hybrid era that still has some kinks to iron out. That's still ludicrously expensive and something that's going to ostracize the smaller teams to a degree because of how expensive they are. And you know, it's an issue, but then again, given that these engines cost millions and millions to develop, you know, these manufacturers have got every right to try and get some of their money back on it. So Absolutely. it's 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 a pain in the butthole because there's no easy answer. Yeah, but See, there's, uh, there's two on. things to to take out of this. Number one, I feel like Formula One has always tended towards more of a purity in racing because it is the the top of the ladder. So technological advancement has always. Uh, you know, taking precedent for the most part, I feel like, um, you know, for the most part, it has uh, been an arms race. King, yeah. you sounded like you're going to disagree. Come forth. I'll yeah. to it's, it's, it's a balance between both. It's always been a balance between both. Agreed. Because when Formula One was first founded, they made the rules to specifically not allow German cars. <laughs> yeah. See, this see, is see, the thing. Sorry. See where we're getting at here? <laughs> yes. See, this is the thing here. Um, my second point is that 
um, over in the World Endurance Championship. I know I'm. We're, it's a Formula One discussion. <laughs> we're going to bring in the World Endurance Championship. I'm sorry, Tumblr is okay to chill out here for a bit. It's, it's okay. It's a safe space. Sure. Um, but over there, you have races that go six hours regularly and go 24 hours, obviously, the non-24 hours. And those races are still very, very fascinating and dramatic and are pretty much the results in the balance for a long time over those six hours and 24 hours. So, and yet that series is held up as also the pinnacle of technological advancement. So have they found a way of having their cake and eating it? Um, I mean, obviously they can get away with having less manufacturers at the top of the sport and spending more money because even if you only have two... LMP1 teams, that's four cars in LMP1, you're still going to have 10-odd cars in LMP2, 15-odd in GT, all of that. So that's okay. But at the same time, you know, Formula 1 is... It, it feels to me, especially now, fans are incredibly, incredibly against the idea of balancing the field. Success balanced, anything like that? No. But no, I mean, that is just nothing like uh, that. And yet, I mean, at the same time, they don't like dominance. Where's uh, the middle ground? It's, there isn't it's one. hard exactly. because, like, the the WEC is completely balanced because of the regulations that they yes. have fuel flow yeah. limits based on on what on what yeah, power guess what? they have you, similar fuel flow use. limits to F one. Yeah, and and to people who say that's not pure, the original Grand Prix regulations in 1906 had a fuel flow limit. There you but go. Sh- Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's an impossible question to really answer because I said it before on Twitter, like, if you go too far one way, you'll have a manufacturer-dominated sport and people don't want that. But at the same time, if you go too far the other end, you're going to have basically a glorified WWE-style scripted product that's deliberately designed to be entertaining and not necessarily one that's about technology and innovation, which is what the series has obviously had over the last 60 years. And obviously years. drivers competing at the very top of their game. Exactly, so... You know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it either way or the other either. Like, for it to be a a healthy, functional sport, you've got to get the balance right. Like any diet, for example, or anything along those lines. So, for me, perfection will never happen because there's just too many different individual elements to, to make up this sport. But it's nice to think about the old times every once in a while, right? And nostalgia, on that, yeah. Yeah, nostalgia, yeah. And speaking of which, Robot Wars is coming back. Yeah. Yes! <laughs> the hype so levels hype, are unreal. So hype about that. Oh, God. Like, BBC2, please don't, please don't mess that up, for the love Excuse of God. Excuse me while please. I go and mark out. Yeah. And also, <laughs> if you want younger replacements for Craig Charles and Jonathan Pierce, if they don't hey. fancy coming back to do it, hmm. <laughs> hey, hey. Hey. And hey, Ryan, have you got a blonde wig somewhere? I'm sure they won't. No, yeah, I'm Philippa not. Forrest is off doing gardening now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's Snoop Dogg is here. Nah. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, we're obviously very excited about that too. We, we promised we'd get that in at some point during the podcast. So uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Robot Wars back. Hype. But um, that's going to just about do it for this episode of the Motorsport 101 podcast. Obviously, you can find us at harrison101.com and on iTunes. We're going to find a way to get ourselves on Stitcher very soon. I know people have asked me about that, and that's something yep. I'm going to prioritize very, very soon. And obviously, you'll be catching some of the highlights on YouTube as well, obviously, if you haven't already. But then again, why would you do that if you listen to this already? So um, you can find me at harrison101hd on Twitter. You can find Adam at AJ underscore Bomber Sports. He changed his username around because he's an idiot like that. <laughs> Just to Brandon. confuse you. 
just to confuse us all, and you can find Ryan King at Ryan Eric King. That's Eric with a K, A R I K, Ryan Eric King. I can find him on Twitter. And then his website, the uh, flat formuletta.com. He changed it around because he didn't want to be a Formula E site anymore. Yes. <laughs> so until next time, I have, thank you very much for listening. I've been Andre Harrison. He's been Adam Johnson and Ryan King. And until next time, thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Like I'm not really you are the world!